0: For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're grateful to our members who make all of this possible and hope that you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members get access to our expanded offering of exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member bonus briefs, and our DSR Daily Brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening at 5 p.m. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed that you can add to your podcast app of choice. Join now for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com and select Become a Member. And don't miss our upcoming mini-series featuring interviews with some of the key players from David's upcoming book, American Resistance, The Inside Story of How the Deep State Saved the Nation. Thank you.
1: 9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio. Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another special episode of the podcast when we focus on a book we think you ought to read. This book is one that has been out for a couple of months, couldn't be more timely, It's The Big Lie, Election Chaos, Political Opportunism, and the State of American Politics After 2020, and it's been written by Jonathan Lemire, who is the White House Bureau Chief at Politico, and you may know him from his multiple appearances on MSNBC, beginning each morning with Way Too Early, which he hosts, but continuing through Morning Joe and off and on to other places. How are you doing, Jonathan?
2: I'm well, thanks for having me.
1: Glad to have you uh, join us. You know, I I sort of judge my own psychological well-being by how many times in a week I get up early enough to see you. I'm not sure it's actually a sign of well-being when I'm up that early.
2: I was going to say, it sounds like there's a correlation perhaps between poor physical and mental health and your viewership of my show, but I'll just note that, folks, you don't have to get up at 5 a.m., you can DVR. The ratings count
1: the same. <laughs> Look, you know, one of the reasons I've been wanting to talk to you because, you know, the the subject matter of the book, the big lie, seems only to grow more relevant. It goes more relevant because the big lie does not seem to abate as many of us thought it might. It has not been renounced. It has actually gained more adherence. And the underlying idea of uh challenging Um, authority that once was not really challengeable, like election results, seems to be gaining steam. And that is, of course, particularly important as we head into an election. When you were writing the book and digging into the origins of all of this, did you have any sense that this might be something that was going to actually accelerate and be amplified in the ensuing period? Frankly, I I continue to be a little bit surprised that the big lie flourishes as it does. Yeah, when I first started the book,
2: which is in the spring of 2021, even at that moment, it was clear the big lie was going to be still with us and remain a a clear and present danger to the United States and our democracy. Even then, Trump had not been excommunicated from the Republican Party. The rehabilitation had begun. There were some early polls. One of the things that grabbed me was I first started to put this together were polls dating from the spring of 2021 that showed that well more than half of Republicans did not believe that Joe Biden was legitimately elected. And this had been well more than six, seven months or so since Election Day. And you are right. This story has only continued and felt more urgent. I mean, the book does trace the origins of the big lie, which we can certainly get into if you'd like. But so much of it is still in our present day. It is not a story that ended on January 6th. It has been embraced by so many in the Republican Party. It's almost a litmus test. And we now, five weeks out from the midterms, have a slew of big lie candidates on the ballot who are not only suggesting that were they to win, they would go back and try to undo the results of the 2020 election. At that point, two years passed but also, of course, make no promises to certify the correct winner in elections forward.
1: Yeah, isn't something like 60% of voters will see an election denier on the ballot? Yeah, the number's right about there. And
2: certainly, you know, more than half of the Republicans in the House of Representatives voted to not certify Joe Biden's victory in 2020. A number of prominent Senate candidates the same, and as well as those who governors and even Slightly down ballot, but just as important offices like State Secretary of State, who are actually those in charge of state elections in many cases.
1: So, you know, you would have thought that since the big lie led to a coup attempt that led to violence on Capitol Hill, one of the darkest days in American life, in which hundreds of people were subsequently arrested, and that it's currently the subject of multiple ongoing investigations by the DOJ that perhaps that would have tainted the big lie. Instead, in some ways, as you've noted, it's been institutionalized and it carries forward to a lot of other forms. There's a piece by Greg Sargent just posted in the Washington Post in which he talks about people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and Ron DeSantis using the term regime to refer to the Biden administration. And, you know, that may seem like, you know, sort of, Semantics, but the reality is they choose the word because they thereby delegitimize the Biden administration as just in just in their passing speech and and so you know this and this infects other aspects of life where other people running in other races start saying, "Well, this may not be an honest election outcome." to what do you attribute that? It shows, first of all, just the continued
2: grip that Donald Trump still has on the party, that this is his lie. He's the one who pushed it. He had hijacked the Republican Party and the conservative media to go along with it. And even though he is no longer in office, he is still the most prominent and powerful voice in the party. Now, that slipped a little bit. You know, we poll numbers suggest that he is standing on Republicans has dipped a touch. We have more Republicans willing to not denounce the big lie, but are willing to perhaps challenge him as we see some of the 2024 contenders, Governor DeSantis among them, seeming like they're gonna gear up for a race, whether Trump jumps in or not. So I think that's first. And I think that he is also, it just shows years in the making how he prepared his followers to doubt the integrity of American institutions, that includes the Department of Justice, So that he can discount their probes into him as just another, quote, witch hunt, as another just political play. And it speaks to a larger conversation about just the silos that this nation is in right now, that Democrats and Republicans don't talk to each other. It's so easy just to get your news from, if you're a conservative, from conservative sources, either online or on television. It's an echo chamber. And there's easy in that environment to fall in behind a strongman or to buy into his conspiracy theories. And that's what we're seeing here.
1: You know, I've got a book coming out in a couple of weeks, which is it about the sort of both the war against the, the deep state and how people who are professionals in, in the government ended up keeping the Trump administration from doing a lot of worse stuff than it did but I've been thinking about it in, in kind of place of the book coming out. And, you know, I, I thought the origin of this idea of a deep state and that conspiracy theory can trace back to Ronald Reagan saying, you know, government is the enemy. But the more I think about it, the more I think that, you know, Ronald Reagan's big lie leads to Donald Trump's big lie. Because. Once you, as you just mentioned a moment ago, discredit the institution, start telling people that government is bad, that you can't trust what the government does, then that naturally leads you, it doesn't naturally, but it can, down a slippery slope, lead you to where we've gotten with distrusting elections. It also, by the way, leads to seeking to shrink government and regulation, and that feeds inequality, which is another issue. But to me, that seems like Reagan's big lie is kind of the original sin of the modern Republican Party. I'm just interested in, A, what do you think of that? And B, when, have you sort of thought back on the deeper origins of how we got here?
2: Yes, I think it's a couple of things. First of all, the point about Reagan is a good one. And I think there's validity to it. It also, because it is helpful to remind ourselves that a lot of what we're seeing right now was not invented by Trump. But he accelerated and expanded it. That already, you know, you can it's a pretty straight line from Americans losing their faith in the government, perhaps from Vietnam, the Vietnam War, and Watergate, through the Reagan era, where we, we Americans were told the the government, well, you know, was the enemy, to the hyperpartisan 1990s, Clinton and the impeachment trial followed by 2000 election with the Supreme Court, uh, many Americans believe, you know putting its thumb on the scale and picking a winner, followed by the response September 11th, the Iraq war. And then, of course, the reaction to the first African-American president, the Great Recession, and so on. So yes, I think that there was already this sense in the populace that government, the government couldn't be trusted like it would be before, and Trump threw gasoline on that fire. And there's never been a more overtly political president as Trump. Everything was us versus them. It was team red versus team blue. And that he prayed into that. And it was easy to, therefore, get his followers to go along and to take believe him. And he is candid. I have quoted him in the book. Others have made similar observations. He uses the term fake news to... You know, undermine the credibility of the news media, where it's not just a fake news is not just a shorthand for "hey, that's a story that's incorrect," but rather it's simply a story he doesn't like that is unflattering to him, and therefore he can say to his supporters, because he has eroded the confidence anyone has in the media, that therefore don't believe them. You can only believe
1: me. Yeah, that's a technique that goes back much farther uh, in in history. Then we sometimes would like to trace it to other kinds of fascist movements. But one of the things that makes it different now is that there are either credulous news media or there are news media that are participating in the dissemination of the lies. And I'm just wondering, you know, as as somebody who's a journalist and a respected journalist, that we've seen the character of political journalism. Change since the advent of the echo chambers, uh, and I'm wondering what role you think that plays, and and do you think that's a reason we might see, you know, the, this phenomenon of big lies perpetuate well into the future?
2: Yes, it's it's I think two tracks. It's the advent of the echo chambers in the United States, which we can date back to the 1990s and the birth of Fox News, mostly but also the advent of social media where it's so much easier to seek out your fellow travelers to only see the news you agree with you can in your twitter feed you can only follow people who you like and who you who are going to say things that you're going to agree with you don't have to be exposed to the other side if you don't and also just the, the anger and the hyperpartisanship is a lot easier to be a part of i'd argue if you're just on your laptop or phone rather than having to have a face to face conversation with somebody so i think that's it and i do think that the media is not blameless we have a lot of work to do that you know there were i think missteps made especially in the early days of trump where he was given far too much latitude where he was given far too much airtime, where you know he was allowed to sort of dominate the news and all of us had to and it took a process and i do think we got better at it but we learned we had to fact check in in real time we just couldn't take a white house statement at face value we certainly couldn't just Even if we're just simply relaying a quote, you can't do it verbatim without the necessary background and context and fact-checking because it would be you – know, you're exposing people who are only going to glance at the tweet and not click onto the story. So that is something that we've had to grapple with during the Trump era, and I will add, looking forward slightly, we'd have to grapple with in a possible Trump 2024 campaign. How do we talk about – how do we cover and talk about someone who could be deemed simply an insurrectionist candidate? We've never been here before.
1: Yeah, but, but you know, it it manifests itself everywhere. You know, I this morning, you guys were talking about Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker gets accused of X, Y, or Z. And, and what's his response? Oh, that's a lie. Even though there's receipts proving it's not a lie. And, you know, this was a kind of a mantra of Steve Bannon's, you know, which is just say whatever you think is going to help you. And, you know, it seems that, this not only has the effect of clouding public debate but it kind of invites onto the stage a lot of unsavory characters who are simply going to say yeah you know this is this is this is fake news you know trump trump said it was fake news about 24 different sexual assault allegations he said it was fake news about tax problems and and fraud issues with his businesses None of those are fake news. But once you've clouded the discussion, it calls everything into doubt, even the facts.
2: Yeah, there's a Trump template here, exactly that. You never acknowledge weakness. You never admit a mistake. You never apologize. You just put your head down and keep going forward and deny, 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 attack your accusers, try to undermine their credibility. And just as you say, cloud the issue enough, throw enough things up against the wall that you hope something sticks, or at the very least, people give up. They say, I can't understand this. It's a he said versus she said, and I'm moving on. We saw him do that time and again during his presidency. We saw it, of course, most famously, the Access Hollywood tape and the aftermath there. We have seen it in his post-presidential life, where, of course, he still you know, denies that he was defeated in that election. And we are seeing now, and this is worrisome, other candidates follow suit. Herschel Walker is a good and timely example of that. And it is something that even Steve Bannon himself told me for the book, that as much as he preached it, he had never seen anyone do it like Trump, where he wouldn't, he would, Trump wouldn't lie, for Bannon, to, to, to win a news cycle. He'd try to win a news hour, a news moment, a news second, just anything he could to get the better of an exchange with a reporter or to change the chyron on a cable news screen, that it would just be relentlessly lying. And eventually, it eroded what people believed.
1: But it didn't erode his standing. You know, he's still the leading candidate within the Republican Party by a lot. By a lot. Um, he's still got the majority of the Republican Party believing um, the lies. When Democrats respond to it by saying, oh, my God, that's a lie, doesn't help them much. What I, I guess, the you know, if the phenomenon is likely here to stay through this election, maybe through the next election, Let's not project out past that. I wonder what the appropriate response is besides the proliferation of fact checkers. You know, what's the appropriate response for opposition politicians? And what's the appropriate response for voters?
2: Yeah, it is a challenging question, one that I think is being grappled with in real time. I mean, certainly, you know, the news media, I'll I'll start there. It will require, as you say, that much more fact checking, that much more context provided to be nimble. An adjustment that was made, I think, correctly, was that in Trump's first campaign and, frankly, his first several years in office, when he would speak, he'd be taken live. That stopped being the case when he was spouting lies about the election, that it would be, he wouldn't be taken live, at least not on networks uh, outside of the conservative side of the dial, because you couldn't it wouldn't be responsible. It was deemed to just air his lies in real time. You had to either you you edit it down and and play a little bit afterwards. You can cut out the lies, or if you're going to carry them, you certainly have to put the real-time fact-checking on the screen with him or have an anchor dip in to interrupt him when he is lying. So I think the media is going to have to just do its best to navigate that. In terms of of voters, and my advice is always to people, you know, to expose yourself to different viewpoints. Don't just believe in one one station or one newspaper or one social media feed i don't know how likely that is but it just seems to me that the more people understand the more they're exposed to the better time they can have their own comprehension and judgment and i think it'll fall to other candidates to just do their best to try to highlight the lies and the misrepresentations but they go into that with a daunting task because so much of the populace has already decided that they won't believe anything they say.
1: Yeah, the, the the other phenomenon that's kind of troubling in the midst of all of this is it, you know, that this feeds on itself. And in the past couple of weeks, we've had Trump appearing wearing a Q lapel pin, spouting QAnon conspiracy theories. And you know, those conspiracy theories, I mean, you clearly know, but just to listeners know that those conspiracy theories include. Wild stories about cannibalism and child trafficking and absolutely insane stuff. But, you know, how bad can it get? I mean, can we really enter this kind of twilight zone world where you say anything to win? And unlike, you know, if you said anything to sell your toothpaste, the FDA would put you, you know, and bring you into court and 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 fine you. But in politics, it looks like the incentives are going the other way.
2: Well, I'll just trace the evolution of Trump and QAnon. I remember when the QAnon phenomenon first sort of broke through and it was the summer and fall of 2018. The first time I noticed it at a Trump rally was one in Ohio that summer. And there were people there with Q shirts and Q paraphernalia and the trump staffers at the time though confused but also were like new to that was bad news and those people were not allowed inside or they were certainly made to take off their gear and now four years later trump is leaning into it because he wants those support that he pays no penalty for having them on his side in fact it's the opposite where it's it seems like he is making an effort to to just. To harden his base, to make sure casts no one aside. It's the same reason why he was has never fully renounced the Proud Boys or Oath Keepers, and this is a, or white supremacists. Where these are people where he has himself refuses to turn his back on people who support him because that's always been one of his guiding philosophies. Is if you like him, that's enough. Uh, but it will be now if it expands. If this if if conspiracy theorists, including Q QAnon devotees, who Hold some very dangerous beliefs if they're considered just another voting block to court, that puts us in a bad place.
1: Yeah, and particularly if, if then the person who benefits from that has an agenda that's autocratic rather than democratic, and will you know just let's get power at any cost, and then we'll eliminate the ways that that power might be taken away from us again. But you know there are other costs to it, and it strikes me that. You know, there's a death toll associated with the big lie as well. And, you know, in the past couple of days, we've seen also some data that showed that prior to the introduction of vaccines, there was not that great a difference between red and blue counties uh, in terms of the COVID death rate. But that after the vaccine was introduced and it was politicized, by Team Trump that was perpetuating a whole host of pretty big lies pertaining to vaccines and and the origins of the disease, that the death rate rose in Trump counties relative to to Biden counties. In other words, lying actually cost people their lives. And so that, that seems to me to be another consequence of this. It's not just political.
2: You no, know, agreed. I mean, and it's more than just the five people who died in the wake of January 6th. I mean, you're right to point out that the other lies being told by Trump and his supporters that have undermined Americans' faith in institutions has led to other deaths. I mean, you, this is correct, where first it was masks and then it was vaccines, where people just didn't trust, they didn't want to believe the government bureaucracy, the science, or, hey, my freedom's being restricted, and they ended up making choices. That led to far more illness, hospitalization, and death. And there's no sign, at least at the moment, that that trend is being reversed anytime soon. That we're, that right now, certainly with Trump as the major political figure in his party and the party shaped in his image, we're still seeing that. We're seeing the cries of lock up, you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci. We're seeing, you know, people refusing to, you know, to, to take precautions that would protect themselves and others simply for a political point. And it is a a, a, a pretty steep slide uh, we have taken. And I don't know if you see any hope on the
1: horizon for that
2: being reversed. I'm not sure that I do.
1: And no, I, I certainly don't. I mean, I see hope because you write books like this. The facts are out there. L- let me ask you as a as a final question, something that pertains to that though, because- you know, within the media, um, you know, there's a debate about how do you handle a country that's this divided? Uh, and there's a strong impulse among, you know, producers and executives and, and others who want to build their audience to find ways to attract audiences that have kind of two worldviews. Uh, and that that leads to Suggesting that the job of the media is to present both sides of each issue. The problem is that that isn't actually the job of the media. In my view, the job of the media is to present the truth. And if one side is presenting a lie, uh, it needs to be called out as a lie and not presented as an alternative political view. There is no alternative political view about global warming, no matter how many people say it. You know, it, it it is something it is destroying the planet, it is caused by humans, and it needs to be addressed. And, and so how do you grapple with this? How do you see this tension within the media and this, this be- between both sides of things and the real job of just trying to deliver facts?
2: It's precisely right. And to be clear, there are you know, some simple political stances or opinions where there are. Different vantage points that are valid because they're all based in reality and fact. People can disagree on certain things, but you're not they'll disagree on facts. That's different. That's the point you're trying to make. And I agree. That's something that I've always tried to do in my coverage. I've been proud of the coverage that I've been part of, whether it's at MSNBC or Politico or prior to that, the Associated Press, where we will call a lie a lie. We will identify something and say, this is not true. You know, it's not, you presented without evidence. Sometimes is the phrase you hear a lot, but sometimes you have to go stronger with that and say, he lied. And that is something that I'm not afraid to do. I think that that is the, that is the job of journalists to tell the truth. And that does, because of and this, connects to our earlier part of our conversation because we are so polarized right now, because there's been such erosion in the news media, that risk that we run is that I will say in my reporting, let's say I'll cost the as a lie, and the other side, we'll simply say, well, that's bias. That's that's not that's not fact, it's bias. And that's what we're up against, but that's what we have to just kind of keep doing is that there is simply, there isn't both sides on facts. It's our job to, with the appropriate context, fact-checking and uh, clear-eyed truth-telling, uh, it's our job to zero in on what is actually happening.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. And that's why for everybody who's listening to this, You know, the job is to find the reporters who do that. Jonathan Lemire is definitely one of those reporters, has been since he started reporting at the Associated Press, certainly is at Politico, and in the work he's doing at MSNBC and in this book. And, you know, you you may have heard and thought a lot about the big lie. It's important to see it laid out on paper. It's important to see the evolution of this concept because it is really a cancer on American politics. And, and this is kind of the x ray, the diagnostic that you need to understand how it is spreading and why it is spreading. So I strongly recommend The Big Lie Election, Chaos, Political Opportunism, and the State of American Politics After 2020. It's a great book. It's also an important book. And I also strongly recommend you continue to follow Jonathan in all of his various capacities. For now, Thank you, Jonathan, very much for joining us, and uh, I hope we can continue this conversation sometime in the future.
2: Thank you. I greatly appreciate you having me in the kind words, and I'd love to come back.